This episode was made possible in part by our great sponsors, such as Philip Dixon and Anushka Maiden. If you want to support us on Patreon from as little as £1 a month and get cool benefits like bonus episodes and even having your name read out at the beginning of the show, find us at Demystified Podcast at Patreon. And if you want to help us grow, why not support us by following us on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod. Every little bit does help. And now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. The 1600s BC, the island of Thera, Greece, or what will become Greece. Now there are two civilizations present in this area. On the mainland are the Mycenaeans, relatively newly arrived on the scene, and they are one of more recognizably ancient Greek of the city-states that we would know and love, and were considered to be their precursor culture. Then there's the Minoans. They've capitalized on the many islands of the Aegean and have built up the trade empire to rival any of the Bronze Age often considered the first advanced civilization in Europe, and centered around the island of Crete where their legacy would last the longest, the Minoans were an interesting people. Between hieroglyphics and a script called Linear A, we don't know their language, so we haven't uncovered all of their secrets. Records from their neighbors paint them in a relatively positive light though. Huge palaces up to four stories high, intricate systems of plumbing, art to rival that of any. They were particularly fond of frescoes, on top of that, much like the Indus Valley civilization, some archaeologists and historians have argued that war seemed unpopular to them. Not that it didn't happen, but more that as a culture, the Minoans preferred peace. But this time is their heyday, and what will happen next will, possibly, seal their fate. The signs have not been good for some time on the island of Thera. The earth trembles, an omen that the gods are displeased. But I'd imagine the people would probably be going about their lives as they always had done. After all, the gods of the ancient world were capricious and mercurial. One day's anger could be happiness the next. They'd wait it out and things would be alright. Then, the sky darkens. Smoke begins to appear from the ground as it cracks and splits. Buildings are shaken to foundations. People run and scream, but to no avail. The grand palaces are torn to rubble, and a sound to pierce the clouds of Mount Olympus itself bursts from beneath their feet. A gout of fire so great it would inspire the stories of the titans, literal forces of nature, envelops the settlement. A cloud of burning ash rushes across the island, scouring it of life and leaving behind a trail of burnt-out hovels and dusty rocks in its wake. The town of Akrotiri is buried, not to be seen again for hundreds of years. The explosion is of a magnitude incalculable to most people. Four times the material of Krakatoa ejected into the atmosphere, 60 cubic kilometers of earth is thrown into the sky as the island is literally torn apart. It's one of the biggest volcanic eruptions in recorded history. With an ear-splitting roar and whoosh of spray, the island was sundered. And if you look at a map of the island that today we call Santorini, you'll see just how bad it was. Akrotiri, the Minoan city we mentioned, was completely buried under a layer of pumice and the fallout caused climate effects that may have been noticed as far away as China, over 7,000 kilometers away. The tsunamis that followed will destroy settlements all over the Aegean, and the earthquake tremors are felt. Imagine Pompeii, the way it's usually depicted, a nightmarish hell on earth, fire raining from the sky, black smog and pyroclastic flows scolding people where they stood, a whole city wiped off the face of the earth in hours. Now imagine that that eruption happened right under your feet. It's not a mountain near the city, it's the very place you inhabit, the island, its surrounds, are all part of a volcanic caldera. The people of Akrotiri had no chance, no escape. 
not even a second to contemplate their impending doom. A total cataclysm. But this was probably not what caused the Minoans to disappear. However, after all, the Mycenaeans who were staring at their rise were a martial people, and they, in their moment of weakness, were not. It doesn't take a genius to work out what may have happened next. The Mycenaeans conquered and settled what we would today recognise as the Hellenic world, but the impact of the Minoans would not be lost. First off, you may have heard of a fellow called King Minos and his palace at Knossos on Crete, a famous site indeed, I've been there myself. You may also have heard how he built a labyrinth under his palace, and in that palace kept a minotaur, a beast of such lethal cunning and brutality that only the great hero Theseus could defeat it. But Minos and his labyrinth wasn't the only takeaway the ancient Greeks brought from the Minoans. 360 BC. Plato finishes writing some new publications. If his mentor Socrates was alive, he'd shake his head. In one of the earliest instances of technophobia, Socrates famously criticised writing. He believed it would cause people to forget how to remember. But these publications will shape the course of the lives of people Plato couldn't even fathom. Some would say those lives would be wasted searching for a dream. Plato writes in the form of a dialogue. To emphasise his point and explain it through an extended analogy, he uses characters, including the one of his late mentor Socrates, to explain his ideas to one another to prove their validity. One of the characters in this particular dialogue, a man named Critias, who was a real person, by the by, explains a story meant to demonstrate the values that Athens should aspire to. In the dialogues Timaeus and Critias, both named after their prominent characters, he tells us this. Long ago, after the gods of Olympus had defeated the Titans and claimed lordship over the world, they divided the lands among themselves so that each would have a physical place to call their own, alongside the concepts they governed. Poseidon was given an island off the coast of Spain, past the Straits of Gibraltar, called then the Pillars of Heracles. Atlantis. It was bigger than Libya and Asia Minor combined, and was ruled over by ten kings, each a child of Poseidon, and was rich in every resource. Its capital city had a grand palace surrounded by three layers of moats, each grander than the last. Roads and canals studded the mountainous landscape, and the island was full of minerals, tin, copper, and a mysterious valuable metal called Orichalcum. But as each generation came and went, the divinity of their rule lessened. The first kings had been the ten sons of Poseidon, five sets of twins, half god, half man. Their sons had been one quarter, their sons one eighth. Whilst Atlantis became powerful beyond the wildest dreams of its denizens, it also became greedy and avaricious, depraved and extravagant. They had everything they needed, but as their divinity waned, their humanity led them to corruption. Nine thousand years before Socrates, Atlantis went to war with the world of the Greeks. It raised a grand navy and sailed to conquer the whole world, and they nearly succeeded, had it not been for the brave Athenians, who were at that time apparently like what we would see the Spartans as, chaste, austere, and a military power. After their defeat at the hands of the Athenians, or perhaps as the cause of it, and as punishment for their hubris, the gods sank Atlantis back into the sea. A great earthquake and storm dragged the city down into the waves and it was never seen again. Quite the story. But just a story. Or so you would think. As is usually the case with what we look into, the truth is never that simple. Today on Demystified we look into the Minoan civilization, and the fact and the fiction behind the story of Atlantis.
This episode will be the first of a three-parter on lost cities, both real and fictional. The first two parts will focus on the fact behind mythological cities and will be on the main show, whilst the third part will be this month's bonus episode for our Patreon supporters and focus on a real-life lost city, or perhaps I should say a historically attested one. So as I signposted, we're going to be looking at two things today, related but ultimately separate. The Minoan civilization and why it collapsed, and the story of Atlantis. The one does inform the other in multiple senses. When Akrotiri was properly excavated in 1967, some speculated that it could have been the direct inspiration for Atlantis, and it's easy to see how. The precursor civilization to the ancient Greeks, the Mycenaeans, conquered a civilization that had at one point been arguably hurt because of a massive seismic event caused by an island that they did live on to be dragged back into the sea. At that time, even with their reputation for scientific advancements, many Greeks would have attributed the island of Fera, Santorini's destruction, to the wrath of the gods. And wouldn't you, if you didn't know how undersea volcanoes worked? An entire island just explodes in a massive ball of fire, wiping out the settlement there forever. There's got to be some kind of smiting going on, right? Of course, it's not a perfect analogy. If any island could be considered the centre of the Minoan culture, it was Crete, rather than Thera. And Crete was just fine. And despite the absolutely ludicrous volume of stuff chucked up into the atmosphere, seriously, go Google Santorini and look at the picture of the island. You can see what I mean. It's like a cookie that's had a massive bite taken out of it. In spite of that ecological damage, it's not generally considered to be the main cause of the downfall of the Minoan civilization. You can, however, see that it lines up with Plato's story. A bit, but we'll get to exactly why Plato wrote that story later or why we think he wrote it. For now, let's start with the Minoans. Who were they? Well, as I said in the introduction, they were one of the precursors to the ancient Greeks. Whereas the Mycenaeans were a more direct ancestor, the Minoans were more like an uncle rather than a father, related but a bit more distant. Their civilization had some aspects you'd see reflected, architectural similarities, amongst others lots of geometric patterns and columns. The differences, however, are rather more interesting. Linear A is the ancestor script to Linear B, we think which was what the Mycenaeans used, making Linear A the oldest ancestor Greek writing. But the Minoans possibly also had a hieroglyphic system, much more like the ancient Egyptians, who themselves also had a shorthand language, a hieratic and later demotic. This language issue, the fact that we haven't deciphered their writing yet, is a big problem, because it means that we don't know very much about them beyond what's painted for us in their frescoes, found by our archaeology, and what their neighbours have told us. For instance, we know that they were a mercantile people because we found their artefacts all over the place in a pattern consistent with trade. We know they worshipped the bull as a sacred animal. It's probably the link that created the myth of the Minotaur, as it's a very common symbol in Minoan art. I said our story in the year 1600 BC. At that time, Knossos had a population of 100,000 people. No small settlement by any means. We don't know exactly when the eruption of Thera happened. It was probably between 1640 and 1540 BC, so I split the difference. It was an absolutely cataclysmic eruption. The volcanic explosivity index goes from 0 to 8, with hypothetical 9 being the absolute highest rating. 8 being eruptions like Yellowstone, which are so enormous they could potentially end all life on the planet by blotting the sun out. Thera ranks about a 7 on that scale. Worth noting it is a logarithmic scale, so the smallest 8 is over 10 times bigger than the largest 7, and Thera creeps into 7 over 6, but it's big. In terms of historical eruptions, it ranks a smidge below Mount Tambora, which was the largest recorded volcanic eruption in history, whose explosion was so large that its climate effects caused 1816 to be known as the year without a summer. 
as the kind of event that would really sink your culture into memory, being the ones to suffer it. Of course, everyone in the Aegean must have felt the effects, but the Minoans had an island they inhabited have the delete button hit on it by the gods. Now, the guy who rediscovered Akrotiri, an archaeologist called Spiridion Marinatos, posited what he called the Minoan Eruption Theory to explain the collapse of their civilization. So what it says on the tin is what we've been talking about. The explosion caused between 60 to 100 cubic kilometers of material to be ejected into the atmosphere. Now, one cubic meter of dirt weighs one metric ton, or just under, so one cubic kilometer of dirt... A thousand cubic meters weighs a thousand tons. So 60,000 tons of dirt, soil, ash, and magma were chucked into the atmosphere. Add to that the tsunamis that followed, and we're talking serious repercussions. But how serious? Well, maybe not that bad. Marinatos postulated that the entire eastern half of Crete would have seen crop failures, but this position is disputed by other historians and geologists. The tsunamis would have been bad, but not necessarily cripplingly so. No, the most probable cause for the end of the Minoans would have been invasion. Add to the fact that Minoans lasted until around 1100 BC, 500 years after the sinking of Thera, and it's not looking promising for that theory. The main evidence of invasion is the trail of fires that struck the island, scorching lots of settlements, but not the palace of Knossos. Historians believe that this is in the pattern with an invading army, who would have left the palace as an administrative centre for themselves and the fact that the Mycenaeans did eventually conquer Crete, the centre of Minoan civilization. The Late Bronze Age collapse probably also had something to do with it. The Minoans were one of the casualties of that, along with the Hittites and the Babylonian Kassites. Established civilizations like the ancient Egyptians and Mycenaeans, who were on the periphery of the worst of the system collapse, did pull through, but the island-centric, trade-based culture of the Minoans would have doubtless been hit hard by the economic catastrophe following the crop failures and the collapse of the trade networks of the ancient world, and then the supposed fleet of seafaring raiders known only as the Sea People, who ravaged the eastern Mediterranean. So thus ends the Minoans. But what of Atlantis? Well, even if the story of Thera inspired Plato, it's pretty clear to us that he isn't referring to it as the basis of his history, if only because Plato tells us pretty much exactly where Atlantis is and how big it is, as well as when it disappeared. Plato, in his dialogue, cites Solon, an Athenian statesman who lived in the 500s BC. Now, Solon did visit Egypt once, and apparently on that visit, the Egyptians told him of Atlantis, which makes very little sense, but we'll explain that later. Now, we have no Egyptian records of Atlantis, so problem number one with the story. Solon's story doesn't add up. Anyway, Plato says Solon said it was located west of the Pillars of Heracles, so west of the Straits of Gibraltar in the Atlantic Ocean off the coast of either Spain or Morocco. Now, the absolutely amazing YouTube channel Overly Sarcastic Productions in their video on Atlantis calculated its distance and its size as being about as big as Texas. Plato's own measurements, which he gives, make it a little bit smaller than that, but he says it's bigger than Libya, what the Greeks know of Africa, and Asia Minor, Anatolia, combined. So it's a decent guess as how big it was supposed to be. Plato's telling of Atlantis is mostly centered around the fact that he's using it as an allegory for what happens when a civilization turns away from moral pursuits and becomes too materialistic. The Atlanteans have all of this sweet orichalcum and tin, but they get too greedy and they lose their divine heritage from Poseidon, so they try and conquer the world. Ancient Athens, inverted commas, then leads an alliance to defeat the Atlanteans and the gods sink the island back beneath the sea to punish them. Needless to say, that timeline doesn't add up at all. Plato says this happened 9,000 years ago, so we'll call it between 9,300 and 9,500 BC. Not even the Minoans are that old. 9,500 was the Stone Age. 
The first complex civilization that we know of was Sumeria, which got going around 4000 BC. To put it mildly, Athens was a glint in the eye of a caveman at that time. There's no way in hell a massive naval battle took place, let alone across the width of the Mediterranean, before the wheel had been invented. Now, it's more likely by far that Plato was being allegorical talking about Atlantis. Why then did he go into such detail about the history of Atlantis and the specifications of its size and its build? I think it's because of his medium, the dialogue. Dialogues are a philosophical tool whereby you write a cross between a story and a play. Several characters talk to each other and discuss some political or philosophical point of contention. Plato's Republic, for instance, is a great example of this. One very popular trick he uses is to take someone well-respected as being clever, like, say, Socrates, who at that point was both Plato's mentor and was dead, so he couldn't contradict what Plato said he believed. And then you have that clever person dunk on some idiot to make your argument look better. For instance, the philosopher Boethius's most famous dialogue features a conversation between himself and Lady Philosophy, a divine or supernatural figure who tells him the truths of the world, which Boethius then conveniently tells to us. And how can you argue with Boethius? I mean, he got told all of his information from Lady Philosophy. So I reckon Plato went hard on making Atlantis seem real so that people would take his analogy more seriously. Maybe he did think Solon had been to Egypt and found out about Atlantis there. Maybe he knew he was chatting absolute nonsense, but if people thought that Socrates had said it, some people would undoubtedly believe it. Aristotle held the view that Plato, his mentor, had invented Atlantis to illustrate his philosophy. A fellow named Crantor, however, who was a student of a student of Plato's, believed it to be true. From there, many different people interpreted it for their own ends, even in the time just after Plato. One Christian theologian, Cosmas Indicopleustes, argued that the story of Atlantis helped to prove, via a pagan retelling of the Bible, the truth of the stories of the Bible. And that the world was flat. Whoopsie. Francisco Lopez de Guara, a Spanish historian who interviewed conquistadors including the infamous Hernán Cortés, helped to codify our understanding of pre-Columbian Mexico through the lens of the Spanish conquest. He believed that Atlantis was in the Americas, or that at least that's what Plato was referring to. Now, this was a position that was apparently shared by both the English scientist Francis Bacon and the Prussian explorer Alexander von Humboldt, famous for pioneering modern empiricism and founding the field of biogeography, respectively, amongst other things. Anastheus Kircher, that guy we mentioned before in the Tutankhamun episode as the one who pretended he'd deciphered hieroglyphics in the 1600s, took Plato at his word and said that Atlantis was real. He even made a map of it. Abraham Ortelius, the creator of the first modern atlas in around 1570, put forward a rather interesting theory. Basically, he was one of the first people that we know of to propose something akin to the idea of Pangaea and continental drift that we know today to be true, that there at one point existed one or multiple supercontinents where almost all of the world's landmass was one massive continent. Today, we reckon there were 10 or 11 supercontinents, the most recent of which being Pangaea, whose constituent parts drifted apart and together again due to tectonic changes in the Earth's crust. Ortelius didn't think that Atlantis had sunk, it had just moved somewhere else. Quote, Unless it be a fable, the island of Gadir or Gadiz, which is the city of Cadiz in Spain, I don't know why he calls it an island, will be the remaining part of the island of Atlantis, or America, which was not sunk, as Plato reports in the Timaeus, so much as torn away from Europe and Africa by earthquakes and flood. End quote. Interestingly, Ortelius was the first to propose continental drift. It would be independently explained, and more probably explained in 1912 by Alfred Wegener, who effectively discovered plate tectonics, but it's a rather interesting little side note of history. 
Why do people in the modern era believe in Atlantis, aside from the desire for a super cool underwater civilization? Well, we come to one of our old enemies of demystified. No, it's not aliens, it's racism. Mayanism refers to the phenomenon of the attempt of people in the 16th century to explain and rationalize the existence of massive complex cities in the jungle of South America, especially those that they had found uninhabited. Now, in our episode on the Maya and their supposed disappearance, we discussed that they didn't disappear, they merely moved out of those cities for a wide array of reasons. But according to the Bible and their views on the superiority of Christendom over the savages, how could they live in such magnificent cities? The answer? Well, they didn't. They stole them from the Atlanteans, who were of course European because they came from Atlantis, which is next to Spain, or was before it became America. Unfortunately, this wasn't just the work of quack conquistadors. The French clergyman and historian Charles-Étienne Brasseur de Bourbourg, who gained fame initially by translating the Popol Vuh, which we also referenced before, was the biggest codex of Maya history that we have, also claimed that the Maya were descended from the Toltecs. Now, this would be fine, accurate even, if he didn't also think that the Toltecs were the Atlanteans, who were a breed of racially superior beings whose works the Mayans simply lived in. This lost him a lot of respect from more serious academics of his time, but it also cemented in the minds of many the ideas that the Americas were Atlantis, and this leads us to the exciting and terrible field of pseudo-archaeology. Yep, much like pseudoscience, pseudo-archaeology does what it says on the tin. It's archaeology, but bad. You start with a theory of your own, a pre-drawn conclusion, and you shape the facts to fit it. For instance, inspired by de Beborg, Augustus Le Plongeon started excavating Mayan sites in the effort to prove that the Mayans were the Atlanteans. He was emboldened by the fact that Heinrich Schliemann had recently discovered Troy, which we've also discussed in a previous episode. But that had put a face to a name, so to speak, of and Le Plongeon wanted to do the same with Atlantis. After all, if the supposedly fictitious Troy was real, why was Atlantis not real? The biggest boost to the pseudo-archaeology came from Ignatius Donnelly, an American congressman, and let's say amateur historian, to be nice. He published Atlantis, the Antediluvian World in 1882 and proposed in it that Atlantis was where the Garden of Eden was and that it was destroyed in the Great Flood of the Bible. Here we see the connection to the earlier Christian writers who tried to contextualize Atlantis as part of their worldview. Now, this was based on the most cloth-eared of spurious logic, but the book sold like hotcakes and reignited popular belief in the Atlantis myth. The Theosophists promoted the general ideas of Donnelly, but didn't agree on the specifics. One of the founders of the movement, the Russian-American mystic Helena Blavatsky, proposed that Atlantis existed a million years ago and was inhabited by a precursor race of modern humans. Because, of course, she did. But wait, it gets even weirder. Who gets involved next? The Nazis! Alfred Rosenberg and Heinrich Himmler, yes, that Heinrich Himmler, both got into the idea that the German people were descended from the Hyperboreans, as described in Greek mythology, and that these people, aka the original Germans, lived in Atlantis. This actually contrasted with the Theosophists' interpretation. The Nazis thought the Atlanteans were superior white people, whereas the Theosophists saw them as a darker-skinned precursor to modern humans, and thus inferior. In modern times, however, Atlantis is basically uniformly agreed to be nothing more than a myth. People have hypothesized, of course, and the self-awareness comes so painfully close to touching. Atlantis researchers Jacques Colina Girard and Georgios Diaz Montexano, for instance, both claim that each other's hypotheses are based on pseudoscience. No, you don't say. But where could Atlantis be if it was real? Well, Plato's description is pretty specific. It's beyond the pillars of Heracles. Now, our usual understanding of that is that it was commonly meant in the ancient world to mean the Straits of Gibraltar. 
it has been suggested that that actually refers to several mountains either side of the Gulf of Laconia, which is just near Sparta, which would put Atlantis anywhere in the Mediterranean or even in the Aegean. But this interpretation isn't very strong. For instance, those who argue it say that it was a common usage of the phrase before the 6th century BC. But Plato wrote after that, so why would he use an outmoded expression in his writing? Some say that it's in the Atlantic, maybe the Canary Islands or Madeira, but those are far too small to be what Plato called Atlantis, which was about the size of Texas, as we said before. Lots of modern depictions in popular culture show Atlantis as having survived under the sea. Think Aquaman or the awesome Disney animated film. But there's not really a reason to believe that that's even remotely possible. You know, the pressure of the water at the bottom of the sea being the big one, or the fact that humans can't breathe underwater and the technology of a thousands of years old civilizations, if you believe the Atlanteans could build an underwater city, then you're not starting from a position that is based in fact. The other serious suggestion is Doggerland, an area of land that used to connect Britain to mainland Europe off the Dogger Bank, the eastern coast of England. Between 6500 and 6200 BC, Doggerland was flooded by rising sea levels, an entire landmass full of budding settlements sunk below the waves, and we know this because pottery from Doggerland is washing up on the shores of England. I think it's unlikely that Doggerland inspired Plato because of how he could possibly have ever known about it, but I do think it is pretty cool in general and worth checking out. So, what happened to the Minoans? Well, it's probably a mix of things. The culture shock of having Akrotiri annihilated by Thera's eruption, the economic damage of the late Bronze Age collapse, the invasion of the Mycenaeans, all of that works for me. The only real mystery to them left is their language, Linear A, which holds the secrets to so much of their history that we can only guess at. What about Atlantis? I think you can guess my perspective on that. Not real. Yep, big shocker. I don't subscribe to any of the unreasonably crazy theories that have been put forward over the years. There's just no evidence for it. Plato had a habit of using allegory to put across his philosophical viewpoints, and I've even suggested why he would have bothered to go ham on the backstory for something that was just supposed to be an allegory. Sure, we've got cool places like Doggerland, but there's no way that there was a civilization there that was anything close to what Atlantis was described as. Remember, Sumer emerged in the 4000s BC, the first proper civilization that we know of. Doggerland flooded in the 6000s BC. The artifacts that wash up on shore prove that people did live there, not that they had any kind of significant or distinct civilization. So there we go then, Atlantis doesn't exist. So why do people believe in it? Well, I'd actually wager that not many people do believe in it these days. It's a bit like the flat earth theories. They've always been the domain of people who were talking out of their proverbials. You've got esoteric theologians, American congressmen with a penchant for revisionist history, dogmatic Catholics trying to make sense of pre-Columbian America, spiritualists and the Nazis all scrambling to fit this history, inverted commas, into their increasingly twisted and bizarre worldviews. They each tried to use Atlantis to prove something. The theosophists thought that Atlantis proved that humans had several races that evolved into a better version every time. The Nazis thought that the Atlanteans were proof of a superior race that they were part of. The Catholics thought that it explained succinctly why the savages of the Americas had great temple complexes, and the congressmen that used it to explain the historicity of the flood of the Bible, amongst other things. Nobody is explaining Atlantis for Atlantis's sake, it's always for some other purpose. Almost like that's what Plato intended? 
Even the people who thought it was real couldn't resist using it as an allegory of some sort. But my point is that when I ask why do people believe in it, I'm kind of being rhetorical. None of the people who were seriously searching for it are considered genuine historians, hence the use of the term pseudo-archaeology. It's like trying to look for the lost continent of Mu, or trying to find the kingdom of the Fisher King. It kind of precludes people from taking you seriously, and sure, both of those have real-world things that could have inspired them, but it's just that. Inspirations. The literal search for things that are so obviously not real is an exercise in futility, and so the number of people who really believe in Atlantis is few and far between. The island of Fera, for instance, is a pretty good analogue for the real-world Atlantis, but it was a thousand or more years before Plato, not nine thousand, and it was destroyed because the island was a volcanic caldera, not because of the wrath of the gods or the inherent corruptibility of humanity. And even then, I'd be working backwards there, wouldn't I? I'm saying, hey, Fera or Dogaland or XYZ Place looks a lot like Atlantis, maybe that's where it was, whilst ignoring the fact that Plato, or let's say Solon if you want to take Plato at his word, or the Egyptians if you want to take Solon at Plato's word, would have had accurate accounts of those events. The Egyptians did, we think, record the fallout of the Thera eruption, but they didn't write reams and reams about the lineage of the ten kings of Atlantis and their ten generations of descendants. So to attach Thera, and we'd be leaving out Dogaland here, because how the hell would the Egyptians make that connection, to Atlantis... We need to assume that the Egyptians saw Atlantis, where Thera is, and not only fudged the date of its destruction by 8,000 years, but also moved it all the way to the west of Spain. Side note, the ancient Greeks and Egyptians did know that Britain was a thing. British tin was used in the creation of Egyptian bronze, such were the Bronze Age trade networks, but I seriously doubt they'd know of the sinking of Dogaland, which happened 2,000 years before Sumer was even a thing. And again, Wrong location, and it's still 3,000 years off of Plato's date. But Atlantis is appealing because it represents something left to discover, like the subject of our next episode, which I won't spoil just yet, or something like Percy Fawcett's Lost City of Zed, it's a terra incognito, a place that's left to mark in on the map. Everybody wants to be an explorer, as loaded as the term is in our modern day with our understanding of pre-existing cultures in places that Europeans thought they'd discovered, it's still a very romantic ideal striving out to find what is unfound. And Atlantis is a veritable gold mine, a landmass attested to by Plato, home to a lost civilization. The possibilities are endless. And the idea is pretty cool too. In the modern revisions, an underwater city is an enduring picture, from the Gungans of Naboo in Star Wars to the objectivist dystopia of Rapture from the Bioshock games, the underwater city is a place cut off from the rest of the world, a glamorous, or perhaps a terrible, isolation. Lest we forget, the Atlanteans are down wherever they are because of a punishment, and apparently they tried to take over the whole world before. Maybe if we ever did find them, they wouldn't be too nice about it. But with that, we close the book, for now at least, on the story of Atlantis. And of course, the Minoans. This episode of Demystify was written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Ashley Styles, with hosting by Wizard Studios and music from ProductionCrate.com. Go to ProductionCrate.com for all of your royalty-free music needs. Check us out on Twitter at Demystified underscore pod, and if you want to, why not support us on Patreon? Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.